Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful truth. Overwhelmed that we get to gain from your sacrifice and your suffering. And I'm in awe of it. And yet I, I agree with what we just sang. I know this with all my heart. Your wounds paid my ransom. Lord, thank you for the gospel that we just sang. Thank you for the truth. And Lord, now as we turn to the, the reading and the preaching of your word, I, I pray that you would move in power. Um, as we study Acts chapter 17 and, and we look at um, some noble-minded Jews of Berea who search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, I pray that'd be true for our church, for the people in the, in, in the seats, for our teams, that we would be noble that we would be hungry and thirsty for the truth of your word, not because your word is any kind of magical talisman, but it's, it's, a, it's a tool, it's a resource that points us to the way and the truth and the life. It leads us to, into an experiential knowledge of who you are. And that's what you died for. Christ, you died so that we would have access and relationship to the Father. So don't let us live for anything short of what you died for. Help us to be noble, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to know you. Lord, may we be a church like Psalm 1 that would delight in the law of the Lord. And on your law, we'd meditate day and night. And that the consequence of that is we'd be like a tree planted by streams of water that um, would never wither, um, but always bear fruit in its season. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17 with me this morning. Um, I know many of you are probably wondering, um, but my dumb phone actually changed by itself, okay? And I was not expecting that at all, so I ended up setting my alarm earlier. So I've been up since about 3.15 old time, um, but it was awesome. The house was silent, coffee was great. Uh, it was a really good morning this morning. Um, as I was preparing this week, this, this was the question I thought of. We live in a, we live in a pretty upside-down world, don't we? Like when you, when you look at the news, you read the news, you think about the latest scandal, whether that's in our community or in a neighboring community, like have you ever just thought like, where did it all go wrong? Like how, how did we get here? Like how did we get to the point where everything seems so backwards, so upside down? Um, well, if you'll give me the opportunity to really um, give an extended introduction to our text this morning, um, what I really want to say is, um, y'all, it's been upside down for a while now. Uh, this isn't, this isn't new to us. The things that feel so new and feel so, uh, you know, so fresh to us has really been existent since Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when we see the way that God created, and he created it good, very good, and he established this divine order where his creation, the Imago Dei, right, you and I, the image of God, created in his image, were given authority to rule with God. Right? That's Genesis 1 and 2, ruling with him, like not apart from him, not above him, but ruling with him. That's the right side up way of living. That's the right side up order that God has established in the Garden of Eden. So this is what Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 begins saying. This is how Genesis 3 opens. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. That word crafty means deceitful. The serpent was more deceitful than any other created being. And that serpent is none other than what we read in the text of the Bible is as Satan. Anybody know what Satan's name means just by definition? Adversary. He's an adversary. 
That's who he is. It's what he does. I mean, he stands opposed to anything of God. And the reason that he is an adversary is because initially he rejected God's order. The order that God created that was right side up, Satan rejected it. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it, um, Isaiah chapter 14. If you just want to note that down uh, and go back and read it, it'll probably be good for you. But Isaiah 14 talks about Satan's fall, how he rejected God's created order, which again is a right side up way of living. It's a right side up order. In Isaiah 14, verse 13, we read about the fall of Satan, and it says this. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Church, unsatisfied with the established order of God, a right side up order, Satan wanted to be he wanted to be like God. He wanted to establish himself above God. And what was the result of that? Isaiah 14, verse 19. But you are cast out. So he's cast out of heaven. But he rules and reigns on earth. He's the God of this age. And, and church, he will spend his limited time, emphasis on limited, opposing anything that is of God, trying to mar and maim the image of God. Anything that resembles God and his established order, his right side up order, Satan wants to oppose that. He is adversarial toward that. And that means, church, that you and I, the imago Dei of God, created in his image, is target number one. I, I was meeting with someone earlier this week that was talking about a, a frontal assault of Satan just on their marriage. And just, just confused. Why, why would Satan be attacking a marriage? Do you want to know why? Because the institution of marriage was given by God to reflect the image of God, to demonstrate his love. Of course Satan's going to attack your marriage. Why is Satan so bound on attacking the church? Because the institution of the church was created by God in a right side up order to reflect the image of God. He is opposed. He is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy anything that resembles the image of God. Peter says that he's a roaring lion prowling around seeking for someone to devour. That's Satan. And far from being a church that, that emphasizes, overemphasizes that or focuses too much on that, the reason that's important is because Genesis chapter 3 says he's crafty, that he's deceitful. So in Genesis chapter 3, the crafty serpent sees the image of God out in the Garden of Eden. He sees Eve standing there, and he begins to tempt her and to craft it. And church, temptation, is, temptation to sin is, is so deceitful, right? It's it's just deceitful. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about the deceitfulness of sin. He says, the reason sin is so deceiving is because it appears fair, but it's actually filthy. It appears pleasant, but it's actually damaging. It promises much, but it performs nothing. So Eve, giving in to the deceitfulness of sin, the consequences of that were, were swift and dramatic. The Imago Dei of God, Adam and Eve, who used to dwell in eternal security, in eternal safety, in a confidence being in the image of God. That's Genesis 1 and 2, a right-side-up way of living. After sin, are immediately aware of their insecurity, immediately aware of their nakedness and their, their vulnerability. And y'all, sin, do you know something about sin? It's always hungry. It's never satisfied. Like Adam and Eve sin, they, they, they buy into that deceit, and what do they do? They kill they have to cover up their nakedness now that they're aware of. So they kill. They make leather loincloths. And then what do they do? God starts walking through the garden, calls them to a tent. And what, is he, what do they do? They hide. What used to be an order, a right-side-up order where mankind's walking with God, 
Now, because the deceitfulness of sin is totally upside down, and they're hiding from God. That's what sin does. It's so deceitful. And when God comes up to Eve, and he says, hey, what, what have you done? Anybody remember how she answers? That serpent deceived me. He deceived me. Revelation 12, verse 9, says this about Satan. He's described as the deceiver of the whole world. So you're kind of thinking, why am I, why am I talking about this? Here's the point. The result of centuries and centuries of the whole world living under the deceitfulness of Satan and sin, here's the result. It's a confused and deceived global society because it's a confused and deceived global society comprised of confused and deceived individuals. The whole world has fallen underneath the deceit of Satan and of sin. And this world, you want to know why it's so crazy? It feels so backwards, feels so upside down. It's a world that cannot, on its own, know right from wrong. Truth from lies. Good from evil. Blessed from curse. Rich from poor. Right from left. You know, you get it, right? On our own, we are so under the guise of deceitfulness and of sin, we can't do it. Paul says this about this world in Romans chapter 1. He says it's a world that's so deceived that we actually suppress the truth. Like we hate the truth that we suppress it. We don't even want to. We don't even want to look at the truth that we've exchanged the truth about who God is for a lie. That although what can be known about God is clear and plain, we are futile. We're ineffective in our thinking. Paul goes on to say in Romans one that our hearts are hardened and darkened. We cannot see the light of what is good. That's the world that we live in. It's it's broken. Anybody agree with that? Just broken, reversed, backwards. The world is deceived and consequently upside down because the hearts of mankind are deceived and consequently upside down. So the craziness, church, that you perceive in the world, it's not new. It's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. But here's why it's important for Acts 17. It's the same world that the Apostle Paul was commissioned to. The upside down world is the world that the Apostle Paul was called by God to engage in. To actually join God in restoring it. And redeeming it and turning it right side, right side up again. And we've been, what, preaching through Acts since when? August 7th. I hope that you have followed along and you're beginning to believe that's the same world that you're called to. That this upside down world that you are living in currently, right now, you are called to. To be witnesses of, to join God with your lips and your lives to turn it right side up again. So, as we look at Acts chapter 17, and you begin to embrace your calling of being a witness, I think Paul has three things for us. Three lessons to turn this world right side up again. You're going to need three things. Ready? First is a savior. The second is a noble mind. And the third is a repentant heart. Three things. A savior, a noble mind, and a repentant heart. So, Acts chapter 17, let's begin in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many great, uh, great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, 
And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, let's pause right here. We have to remember where Paul's at, okay? This is his second missionary journey. And last week we saw that he left Philippi. So he had been preaching in Philippi, establishing churches in Philippi. Now he's gone from Philippi, and he travels a good amount of miles all the way down to Thessalonica. Thessalonica at this time was the second largest city in in the Greek culture, Corinth being the first, which we'll talk about next week. And what does Paul do when he gets to Thessalonica? He does exactly what he does in every city. He finds a synagogue, he enters that synagogue, and for three successive Sabbaths, so three weeks, he begins to reason with them to prove from Scripture, look at verse 3, that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In essence, what he's saying to the people in Thessalonica is you need a Savior, and he has come, and his name is Jesus. Now, his audience here is who? It's, it's Jews. He's going into the synagogue, and it's God-fearers. You all remember that? I've, I've asked almost every week for like, what, eight weeks? God-fearers are Gentiles who have put their faith in the monotheistic God of the Old Testament. So his audience are familiar with the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. They know from the Scriptures that they should be expecting a Christ, a Messiah, And Paul's here to say, uh, hey, he's come. The Messiah is actually here. He's just come in a way that you didn't expect. And Coleman mentioned this in his announcements. They they expected a lion. He came as a lamb. They expected a king that would have a crown of gold, and and he came with a crown of thorns. Right? They expected uh, someone that that would be all sufficient. Instead, he came suffering. This Messiah of Jesus came in a way they didn't expect it. So... Paul, using his deep understanding of the scriptures, began to point out to them from the scriptures that it's Jesus that's actually the Messiah. I, I've said this before through the book of Acts, but, but for 18 years, I thought that Christ was Jesus' last name, right? Am I the only one? Thank you all for your solidarity. <laughs> I, I really thought Jesus Christ is his last name. It's not. It's, it's a title. That word Christ means anointed Savior, Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. So from Old Testament Scripture, he begins to point out. Could you imagine being in that Bible study? That for three Sabbaths, you're just hearing Paul, using his Pharisaical understanding of the Old Testament, connect it to that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Like, I wonder what he used. I I, I was thinking this week, I, I wonder if he pointed the Jewish attention to the sacrificial system itself. Right, this system, this order that God had placed, that to sacrifice an animal, that would mean the atonement of your sin. I wonder if he said that's actually fulfilled in Christ's life. Like, what else would he have used? Genesis 3, 15, do you know the gospel was preached in the garden? When, when God looks at the serpent and says, on your belly you will go, and it says, and you'll, you'll bite the seed of the woman's heel. Like, you'll hit his heel, you'll crucify him, but he's going to stomp your head. Through his resurrection, he's going to defeat you. I wonder if he reminded them of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Right? Abraham putting his only begotten son on an altar, foreshadowing the fact that God would put his only begotten son on the altar. Like, like what else do you think of? The Passover lamb, anybody? The Exodus? That the blood of a lamb put over the doorpost would allow death to pass over them, and then the blood of Christ put over the doors of your heart would allow death to pass over you? On and on and on he goes. Isaiah 53, anybody read Isaiah 53? That this Messiah would be pierced for your transgressions, crushed for your sins. And upon him, the chastisement that brought you peace and that by his wounds you'd be healed. We could use any scriptures, all kinds of scriptures, because this book points and foreshadows that the Christ was Jesus. So 
Paul's using the Old Testament saying, guys, you need a Savior. And this Savior has come. He just came in a way you didn't expect him. Church, can we all agree that our world needs a Savior to turn right side up? Our world is, is enslaved, chained to an upside-down way of living. But do you know what John chapter 8, verse 36 says? If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus is the Savior. So what happens as Paul's preaching? Well, some, some were persuaded. A whole lot of Greeks, including some very influential women, but a majority of the Jews were jealous. And they began to stir up the crowd, stir up the, the mobs to begin to attack Paul. Here's a point for us about an upside-down world. Did you know that the upside-down world is pretty content living upside-down? And when you step into an upside-down world and you begin to say, hey, you guys are deceived, and you're believing a bunch of lies, and you, you actually need a savior because you're enslaved to a way of living you can't get yourself out of, most people, when they hear that, are not going to like hearing that. And neither did Paul's audience. They got angry. And in an uproar, they, they find Paul, but they actually don't. They just find his host, this man named Jason. Never appears in the scriptures apart from this. Just the host of Paul and his companions. He gets drugged before these authorities. And look at the, look at the accusation in verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The jealous world, in essence, is screaming, y'all, we're, we're, we're right side up. That's what the jealous world is saying. We're, we're right side up. You're the disturber of the peace. You're the one that's upside down. But then they, they really began to speak a lot of truth here at the end. Their, their accusation in verse 7 is, is they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king who is Jesus. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. To turn the world upside down, that Savior, we, we need another king, y'all. We need another king. We need another kingdom. We're reminded in Acts chapter 17 that the gospel message, the gospel message of Christ, that he is our Savior, y'all, it will threaten the kings and the kingdoms of this world. It is a direct attack to the very underpinnings of an upside-down world and all its beliefs. That's what the gospel message is. It is a weapon and it is offensive. But we have to remember that this new king, Jesus, this new king and his kingdom, it is not of this world. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Everybody was expecting that this new kingdom would be of this world. And he says, no, it is not of this world. In the right side up kingdom, this is what it looks like. Blessed are the poor, not the rich. Blessed are the meek, not the proud. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who are hungry and thirsty for their own passions. Blessed are the merciful, not the ruthless. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the domineering. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the sinful. Blessed are the persecuted and the weak, not the strong. That's what Jesus taught. He said, I'm here to establish a kingdom that is right side up. It is not of this world, but it is exactly what God intended when he created Eden. But these jealous Jews were so upside down, y'all, so deceived that they resisted this, this Savior. They resisted this king. So poor Jason, obviously pretty wealthy, ends up posting bonds for them. And Paul and Silas and Timothy get out of Dodge. They head out of Thessalonica. So let's pick back up in our text, verse 10. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. 
But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. All right, let's pause again. They get kicked out of Thessalonica. They travel 50 miles south to the city of Berea. And what they do? They continued in their same old pattern. They went straight into the synagogue. They began to preach, to preach the gospel, the same gospel they preached in Thessalonica, that Christ had come, that he had suffered, that he had risen from the dead, and salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. But look at verse 11. This is what we have to learn from here, here in Berea. It says, you know, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Here's point number two for us this morning. For the world to be turned right side up, y'all, we need a noble mind. We, we need to reflect and mirror what these Jews in Berea were about. They had a noble mind. They were noble because they were receptive to the possibility, right? Open to the possibility that maybe this world is upside down. And then they're open-minded enough and receptive to the fact that maybe I need a Savior to, right, to right me up again. The jealous Jews, though, from Thessalonica, so intent on protect, protecting their upside-down world, came all the way to Berea, right? That 50 miles to stir up the crowd once again against Paul. Church, let me say it again. An upside-down world is not content being left alone in their upside-down ways. An upside-down world has to have you not only agree, but join them. That's what an upside world does, to the point where they would travel 50 miles just to make sure that nobody in Berea would right side up again. We see this over and over in our, our day and age, don't we? Like, just take the gender and the sexual revolution that is so popular throughout our culture today. Like, what began as a far cry for acceptance? How quickly did that move into, no, 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 you, aff affirmation? No, 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 ap approval. And if you don't approve, now you hate and you're not loving. That's what an upside-down world will do. It, it, it won't just take uh, contentment and believing a lie. It's that, no, you have to believe it too. And that's exactly what's happening here in 17. The same world that was upside-down that Paul was called to, church, is the same world that we live in today. It's the same world that we are called to right-side up. But what is so encouraging about these Jews in Berea is that they were noble. They were open-minded. They were hungry. They were thinking through the scriptures. They were, they were looking. Is this true? Am I actually living an upside-down world when I thought that I was right-side up? And I think there's something for all of us here. Are you living curiously? Are you, are you humble enough to inquire of the word of God? Is my life reflected here, or does it look more like the world around me? But the Jews in Berea were, were noble. So that's point number two. To right side up the world, we have got to have noble minds, open hearts to maybe we need a savior to right us up again. So let's read the remainder of our text and, and look at Paul's ministry in Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Emphasis there on the plural, divinities, because these guys thought he was really preaching Jesus and another deity called resurrection. So he thought he was preaching polytheistic religion. And they took him and they brought him into the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So he brings some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring, we're his children. Being then God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man, his name is Jesus, from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among those also were Dionysus and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right, so he, he departs Berea and actually makes this journey 141 miles south to the city of Athens. Now, now Athens of Paul's day, about 51 AD, would have been really a, a shadow of its, its golden years. Athens was no longer the political or economic or cultural center of Greece. That was Corinth, which we're going to talk about next week. But it still had its reputation. It still had the reputation of high intellect, a, a place of great schooling, a great place of culture. So Paul, verse 16, while he's waiting for his companions, he's just walking the city. And look at what happened when Paul was walking. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So the art that, that lined the streets as he's walking would have depicted the, the Greek mythology, the, the Greek gods and goddesses, the great exploits of those Greeks. The, the architecture would have been temples and pantheons that would have hosted all of these idols and these multiple deities. And Paul, y'all, was provoked by what he saw, infuriated, angry by what he saw. Church, for us too, we, we have... It's okay to have a holy provocation in your spirit when you begin to perceive the idolatry that existed in our culture. I, I pray that it stirs you to a holy anger. You know why? Because it stirs God. Because God is a holy and a jealous God. And he feels that anger when his glory is distorted and shared with myths or creations or idols. For God is jealous. And Paul, as he's walking the city of Athens, begins to share in God's jealousy. The reason God is jealous, y'all, is because he will not share his glory with another. We see that all throughout Scripture. He will not share his glory. And if we are zealous or passionate about the glory of God, you too will be provoked when you behold the idolatry of our culture. When we begin to see how far from God we really are, I pray that it stirs you. So, Paul provoked Instead of waiting for his team, jumps right on in. 
He does exactly what he does in every city. He begins to preach in the synagogues. But what's important about Acts 17 is he begins to preach in the marketplace. Y'all, he is on fire right now. Perceiving this idolatry, he's out in the streets preaching to anybody that will hear. And the ones that hear him are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But let me, before I talk about these philosophies, let me say this. It is so important for us to see that Paul's zeal, anger, holy jealousy did not lead him to condemn or to cancel the culture he was called to. What did it lead him to do? Preach it. To engage it. To point people to a Savior that can redeem, restore, and right-side up a culture. So we have got to follow not just the anger that Paul's feeling, but the way he dealt with that. He preached Christ. He preached Christ. So these philosophizers, so wise, want to hear something new, bring him up to the Oropagus. It's a court where they would bring people to share what they believe. And he's standing up on Mars Hill. That's where we believe that it was at. And he begins to preach. And y'all, as much as I would want to spend time on these philosophies, because this, this sermon in Acts 17 demonstrates the brilliance of Paul in a way that no other sermon does. Because Paul most often quotes Old Testament scriptures all throughout his sermons. But in here, Acts 17, he actually doesn't quote Old Testament scripture. Why? That's right. His audience would never have known that. So what does he do? He actually quotes Greek philosophers to begin establishing common, common ground and using that to preach the gospel. So Paul's brilliance is on full display. But what I want us to see this morning is his punchline. Okay, here's his gospel. Here's what he begins to preach to these guys. He says, listen, guys, I see that you are religious. That Greek is just passionately devoted. I see that you are a passionately devoted people. I'm walking the streets. I'm observing your people. I'm seeing all these idols. I perceive that you're passionately devoted. But then he goes on to tell them, it's just misdirected. Your devotion is great. It's just, it's just driven by ignorance. You're deceived. You're worshiping things that are unknown to you. Let me fully proclaim it to you. Let me make it known to you. And what does he do? He does. He, he begins to talk about God. The gospel begins with God. I don't know what week that was. That could have been in September. It could have been last week. Everything runs together for me. At some point, we talked about how the gospel begins with God. And he, and he does. He says, listen, God, he, he's the creator. He made the world. This is verse 24. He made the world and everything in it. And he is Lord of heaven and earth. He's the creator. Go back to the introduction. He created all things to be good. All things to be very good. And he has given us everything. He is even, this is Paul's sermon, allotted periods and, and boundaries so that we could rule with God and continually seek him by walking with God. He is a God who created us for his created order, a right side up order. He even quotes this, this philosopher. Look, look at verse 28. It says, and in this God, we live and move and have our being. Here's the punchline, verse 29. It says, being then God's children, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Let, let me summarize this. Let me use different words to explain what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, y'all, God created us to live right side up. And he created us to live in him. In him we move and live and have our being. We are created to find our life in him. And being God's children, created for that right side up order. Instead, we have all lived our lives finding life in anything and everything but him. That's what verse 29 is saying. You're God's child. Don't, don't try to make him something formed after your own art, your own imagination. That's a time of ignorance. 
What he is saying is you're created to find your life in him, but you're upside down and you continue to live your life finding life in anything and everything but him. You know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. We are so confused about what idolatry means. We, we lived in South Asia. We visited every Hindu temple that you can imagine. I know what that type of idolatry looks like. Our idolatry is just as blatant. Our idolatry is a heart thing. Y'all, sin is always a heart thing. That's why when Jesus came and said, hey, have you ever lusted after a woman you've committed adultery? They're like, whoa, I didn't commit adultery. He's like, your heart did. Sin is a heart issue. Idolatry, church, is a heart issue. It's not just bowing the knee to a statue or to an idol. It's a heart thing. It's finding your life in anything and everything but God. Listen to what Tim Keller says about idolatry. This is from his book, um, Counterfeit God. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Let me say that again. You'll hear that. Hopefully you're hearing this through your own lens a little bit. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Church, idolatry is finding life in anything and everything but God. And that is contrary to the right side up order that God wants us to live in. He created you to live with him, to find your life in him. And this is where Genesis 3 is so important because Satan comes and he begins to tempt and he begins to deceive. And he looks at Eve and goes, no, no, don't find your life in God. Find your life in the God. And she, she took the fruit and ate. How many of you have taken the fruit and eaten? Romans would say all of us. That we've all been deceived. We have all been led to find life in things apart from God. You're all guilty, church. Every one of us guilty of idolatry. Let me give you some examples of how we are all idolatry. Y'all are really encouraged this morning. Thank you. <laughs> I woke up early for this. Okay. Take any sin. Take the sin of, of pornography or sexual exploitation or promiscuity, anything like that. It is an attempt to find happiness or comfort, or pleasure, or in anything in somebody else rather than God. It's idolatry. You, we think it's just a sinful act. It's, it's not. It's meeting a deeper desire apart from God. You're guilty of idolatry. Take the sin of drunkenness. That's a temptation to ease or to heal pain, right? Or stress. Why do we drink? For stress. With, with, with alcohol. Not in God. Church, that's idolatry. We think it's just a sinful act. Maybe I just had too much. It's not. It's finding in alcohol what you were created to find in God. You're an idolater. Take the sin of gossip, slander, or judgment. It's an attempt to make yourself feel better by putting somebody else down. Church, that's idolatry. You think it's just slander. You think it's just gab. It's not. It's, it's finding your security in the pr approval of man where you're created to find it in the approval of God. You take any sin. And you begin to pull that thread to see where it's rooted at, it's rooted in idolatry. That's why the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall find, have no other gods before me. Church, hear this. God is jealous. He will take no smaller portion than the whole when it comes to your attention and your worship. He will take no smaller portion. He created you to find all of your life in him. And any time we attempt to find it out apart from him, we are idolaters. So Paul is saying, guys, you're upside down because you're idolaters. But look at verse 30. And I'll begin to land this plane here. He says, but the times of ignorance, church, God overlooked. 
Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's point number three for us. To, to be right side up, you have to have a repentant heart. A heart that refuses to continue to find satisfaction and life in things apart from God. Turning from this upside down world and beginning to put our faith in the, in the fullness of what Christ purchased for us. It's a repentant heart. At times of ignorance, God overlooks. But now he commands all people, every one of you, every one of us, everywhere to repent, to be right side up. And church, be warned. Look at verse 31. This is urgent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repent, because this is urgent. There's a fixed day where judgment is coming. But what's really encouraging about Paul and about this, this fact that we have a Savior is if you have a Savior, and if you're noble-minded and you're open to the fact that you need a Savior and you're repentant in heart and you put your faith in that Savior, you don't need to fear that day. You can rest assured that just because he, wrote, because he raised him from the dead, you too will be raised to eternal life. You don't need to fear that day. So we live in an upside-down world. I think we can all agree on that. But Acts chapter 17, Paul was called to that upside-down world. And because you're breathing in this world in this time period, church, we too are called to this upside-down world. But to right-side up it, we need a Savior, we need open minds, and we need a repentant heart. So let me pray for us. And I pray that you would reflect on that as we, as we go into our song of response. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We all acknowledge, God, that things are backwards, not as they should be, just, just upside-down deceived and by definition to be deceived means we're not aware of it so thank you for the light of the gospel thank you for ever pursuing being faithful when we're faithless being persevering in your steadfast love of your people to constantly call us back to the reality that we're living upside down father forgive us for all the times that we have found life in everything but you Forgive us for hearts that are so prone for idolatry. Have mercy, O oh God. I pray that you would magnify yourself in our lives and our hearts, that we would seek you, continually seek you, and that we would, by, by your grace, find you, knowing that as Paul preached, you're not far from us. You're near. Your word says you wait to be gracious to us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to find life in you, that we would live in this right-side-up kingdom, under this right-side-up king, and that we would live our lives on fire, pointing people to you, pointing people to a right-side-up way of living in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.